beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. You're doing a, another episode. And uh, again, thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time out of your day. Download the podcast and have a listen. And again, we, we have such joy and uh, we just love putting out these episodes. We feel like we're learning a lot and hopefully you guys are learning a lot as well. Today's episode, we have with us Pay Grant, uh, who is a PhD so who is a doctor, is the research director at Hospice Buffalo and one of the largest hospice and palliative care organizations in Western New York. Pay is committed to using discovery, innovation, and collaboration to find ways to promote well-being, meaning, and dignity through a serious illness. Her research encompasses a diverse range of projects from programmatic studies to psychosocial research to medical projects, and her work has been recognized nationally and internationally to be innovative and enhancing quality of care to new levels. She works alongside clinicians, insurance companies, academic scholars, and other community partners to develop and evaluate programs that deliver better care. She believes that while it is important to find ways to lead a meaningful life, she advocates for people to focus on what it takes to have a meaningful death. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me here today. Well, Pei, it's been a while since we first talked or first met, and I uh, I still remember that I was able to come down and visit you and my supervisor at the time to Buffalo Hospice, and you have such a wonderful team. I remember that's one thing I do remember is just how amazing your team is. And so, do you hire them yourself? Like, are you the one that chooses who uh, who gets hired or not? Yes, I select my team members myself, and thank you. I do enjoy my team very much, and I love working with them. And And so in the hiring process, I interview everyone, and I like to select people with different backgrounds. So in the past, I've had social workers, nutrition scientists, rehabilitation therapists. I really like to get different perspectives at looking at problems and seeing what people can bring to the table. And so I like the very multidisciplinary approach to everything. Oh, that's cool. And is there like a uh, a specific question you ask that really kind of weeds people out? I like to ask people what they're passionate about in life. You know, what do they want to do with their life if there was nothing in their way? And mm. so, of course, you get people that answer things like, this is the job I want or you know, it really depends on how authentic the answer is. I'm not looking for any right or wrong answer, but I like to see curiosity and passion. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's got to be fun being being the one choosing who is a, gets to be a part of the team and who doesn't, because that's someone you're going to be working with for a long time, and you need to have that that good relationship with each other. And so, have you ever like had someone that didn't work out yet? Or has everyone just been, you know, everything you've dreamed of? Uh, for the <laughs> most part, everyone <laughs> I have. That's a tricky question. Uh, you have the to name part, names. I'm just curious. Like none of them are listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, for the most part, my team, they've always been very um, wonderful and, and very creative. And I keep a, in touch with a lot of my former team members who have since moved on. There are a few people that, uh, you know, was really great at a time and they just needed to move on to something different, a different life passion, a different calling, which we are completely supportive of because I think that the life, you know, passions can change. And as individuals, as 
human beings, we should support each other in the next step of their journey. Yeah, and I can only imagine too, going for a job and then working with the bereaved and the dying, if they've never had that opportunity, is a very new experience for them that some may not love so much as they once thought. And some people, I'm guessing like what happened to you is you turned to, you found that it was very meaningful in your life to be a part of that community. And so could you actually go back to the days before uh, the hospice and you being a biochemist? Could you go back to that time and maybe get give our listeners understanding on how you even got here? Yes, certainly. So yes, it's true. I had a very different professional life. I was trained as a biochemist. My PhD is in biochemistry. And I was a hardcore biochemist. You know, the ones you would see on, in the movies, on television, I wore lab goggles and a lab coat every day. I did experiments and I loved it. I've always loved science. And I am a type of person that likes to plan things out. So I had my life planned out. Do my undergrad in biochemistry, get my PhD, do my postdoc, end up working at a biotech company, looking for some cure and saving the world that way. That was my life plan. And I was in Buffalo doing my postdoc. And I was standing there at the bench one day and I thought to myself, is this what I really want to do with my life? And I had an existential crisis, essentially, saying, thinking, would I do make a difference? And I had done a little bit of soul searching and just exploring different careers because I do have other passions. You know, STEM and diversity is one of them. And and in a series of really odd events, I ended up interviewing for the research director position at Hospice Buffalo. And I didn't know much about hospice or palliative care. Um, and to this day, this is one of the oddest interviews I've ever had in my life. And I was intrigued um, when I was talking to my now boss and CEO of Hospice Buffalo, Chris Kerr. And I couldn't let go of the idea of working at Hospice Buffalo. I never worked with the bereaved or dying, never done any of that. And to make things more complicated, that very week I had another job offer from the university to be a assistant director for STEM education and diversity. So I, like I mentioned, uh, another passion of mine. So I couldn't decide. I was homing and high, and my now husband, he had turned to me and he said, clearly you're intrigued by this opportunity hospice buffalo. Why not just take it? And he just looked at me, and those two words, why not, just kind of like stuck with me. So the next day I accepted the job, and I took this great big leap of faith and completely changed my career from one field to another. And the learning curve was steep, but it was wonderful. I've never been so challenged in my life before, but I've also never been so appreciative and joyful of what I can do in my career. And that's how my story is with my professional journey. It's very interesting. And uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who is a biochemist as well. She's doing um, she's doing her fellowship in San Francisco, or sorry, San Diego. And we were talking one day about for job fulfillment. And one thing she said, I went in and wonder if you share this, is that sometimes it's hard when you're working at the microcellular level to kind of uh, see the impact of your work because it, it just takes so long to kind of get to the stage of 
in society after whatever you're doing, especially actually drugs and stuff like that. Was that one aspect that you found where you were getting fulfillment kind of as you were doing it in this new position? Definitely. So that was one of my things when I had that crisis where I was thinking, I know my work will be impactful, but I won't get to see that many years from now. And so I want to work uh, in an environment where I can have a more direct impact. And so doing what I do now, talking to the patients, talking to the families, I see, you know, my impact on them. And I see what my team, our clinicians, what differences we can do real time. And so that has been incredibly fulfilling uh, for me. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's something that you could see right away. And no wonder that you, you, you've got into something that you truly enjoy. And, and that's kudos to you. Because again, like, you know, you're switching into something that is a little bit different, different than what you're doing. So it was challenging, you know, but you took on that challenge and decided, you know, I can do this. They obviously saw something in you that they said, you know, I think she can do this. And yeah, look at you now, you're, you have something that you're enjoying. Yes, I think uh, I think that this career change has been good for me because I went into it not knowing what to expect. And I had mentioned this to some people before in that, you know, making that conscious decision, I knew that I was going to learn a lot about death and dying and loss. But what I have learned so much for myself is about life and living. Yeah, that's so true. And it's something that we don't really, I think, think a lot about is about how we live and what we're living for. But when we sit with the dying or those people with an illness, they sometimes can give you that. They can realize you can sort of see yourself in them and picture yourself dying yourself. And what do you want to leave this life with having done and experienced? And so I think that's, I think it's just such an amazing journey for you to have actually take that leap of faith. Cause I know so many people who are like, no, I'm going to stick with what I know. I don't have to learn anything more. There's no steep curve. I know what I'm doing. I went to school for this and they stay with that just because all they know. Um, but you, you, you had a push and, and that's the, the beauty of this life that we love talking to people in the podcast is these changes and what gets them to something more meaningful in their life. As you said, like it's something you weren't looking for at that time, but now you found it and you're really grateful for that opportunity. Absolutely. I feel very privileged to work with the people that I do work with, the families that I get to talk to, the patients I get to interact with, and just everything has really changed my outlook on life. I follow your Instagram and the one thing I do love is the honesty that you actually have and what you put into each post. And one of the interesting things I found on there was that your family wasn't always 100% supportive in the sense of you working with the dying because of cultural, I guess, ideas or superstitions. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what was it like to also be the rebel in the family? (laughs) (laughs) I like the word rebel. It makes it sound... uh... Not much better than black sheep, I would have to say. <laughs> yeah, adventurous. <laughs> uh, you know, with my parents, so uh, I am 
first generation uh, you know Chinese my parents are Chinese you know immigrated to Canada and so the Chinese culture I grew up with uh, is very death averse there's a lot of death rituals that are very beautiful but also the idea the conversation surrounding death is non-existent because of the superstition, the taboo, that the idea that you would talk about death is simply you're inviting death at the door. And so it's not something that is discussed. There's a lot of things that are done when a person dies, but not, you know, beforehand. There's a lot of traditions where, for example, you know, my family, if someone was pregnant, they wouldn't attend a funeral because it would be bad luck for the mother to uh, to be. And so death was always something to be fearful of, to not talk about, and it's just bad luck. And so when I had talked to my parents about both my job offers, I could tell what one they probably wanted me to take. And they were very good and very kind and said, it's ultimately my decision. And they didn't really say anything, but I knew that uh, they wanted me to take the other job because they had specifically asked me if I would be seeing patients at the end of life. And I said, I, I would be, that's, you know, part of what I do, or I would be doing. And so I took the job and they're like, oh, I see you took this job. That's great that you took this job. But I knew in their heart, they'd much rather have me be a doctor, you know, a, a physician. And so that I felt was another disappointment for them. And then they eventually came around and said, oh, what kind of research do you do? And tell me more about the research that you do. You know, what do you talk about when you talk to uh, to you know, hospice patients? And I said, oh, one of our projects is about end-of-life dreams and visions. So I told them about that. And it was just met with silence. And they said, so you're telling me you go and talk to people about their dreams? And I said, yes. And with the Chinese, at least with my parents, you don't have to say a lot of words, but a lot is understood in between. So I could tell that they were thinking that I went to school, got a PhD in biochemistry, and now I'm sitting in a room with a dying person, which is bad luck, and then asking them about their dreams. And so over the years, I've explained more about some of the different research projects we've done, and I think they're coming around it um, in that sense. But I think it's still a, a growing opportunity for them to understand of what more that I do, how meaningful it is. Um, because to them, they feel that I'm putting myself in danger by being around an environment that is so full of bad luck. Oh, that's so interesting. I never knew that about the Chinese culture. And so is there a negative stigma on dreams also? I think it depends. In my family, you know, dreams sometimes can be uh, a way that people in their afterlife can communicate. So a lot of grief dreams are seen as that, that someone who has passed away is coming back to tell you from the spirit world or, or um, from the veil that they're okay. So it's a, it's a communication, uh, a way of communicating. So it's not that it's bad, it's just from my parents' perspective is I have a biochemistry degree and why am I talking about dreams? 
right <laughs> it's gotta be kind of <laughs> it is kind of funny <laughs> like it scratches your head i'm like what happened like, <laughs> like it did because they yeah. told me they tried to explain to my family one time at a restaurant and i felt really bad for them because they they you know they're they're immigrants and they worked really hard to support my brother and I in our educational endeavors. And so they had once shared a story about telling one of my aunts and uncles what I did. And they told them about the dream research. And it was at a Chinese restaurant. And the waiter just burst out laughing and gave them a hard time. Said, I can't believe that's what your daughter does. And my heart broke for them because that individual made them feel shame. And no one should make someone else feel shame but at that moment i knew that hurt them a lot and so that hurt me in turn yeah that's uh it's a very interesting conversation about that and uh, like i i myself come from um immigrant parents immigrant family and when even when i tell them that um i'm doing the podcast they understand now <laughs> but uh <laughs> when i initially had those talks People in the community and, and family members, it was um, very confusing, and definitely they, I could see in their eyes a level of like concern. Um, I think mm -hmm. they were just worried about me delving into this world that I think they didn't even understand completely, and just the the fear, I guess, that the world will take you over and change your thoughts and change your behaviors. But I think that was just their biases on what dreams and grief was in general, um, and. Sometimes when I talk to introduce the podcast to people, I tell people, oh, this is the podcast. They immediately go, and, oh, it must be really dark. It must be a dark, you know, conversation. It must be hard. And, you know, I'm like, you just listen to it. Like, we, we're laughing. We tell a lot of jokes. Like, we're very upbeat on it. And that's just, that's the part of changing the narrative on death and grief being a dark and negative thing. But, but I, I really, I really uh, get what you're saying in terms of, I guess, immigrant families. But honestly, I think it's society at large, too, to a degree. I think Western society, you were talking about how, you know, death it plays into kind of unlucky or lucky. Western Western culture still has a little bit of that with um, the death culture and dying as well uh, at large. I think that, you know, if someone was to be a doctor and then all of a sudden go into the funeral home business, you know, people would really look at that like, what are you doing? Like, Oh, I don't know if you should do that. You know, it's just that level of concern, but I don't think people understand completely. I completely agree. I think, you know, I think concern plays a big part of it, but also I think, like you said, confusion and not really understanding. I think each one of us has our own life narrative. Each one of us has a story to tell. And if we give other people that time to tell their story and understand why we do the things that we do, it's a lot easier to have honest, authentic conversations. You have your podcasts, you have, you're advocating for conversations surrounding grief and many different uh, things. And it's not dark, like you said. You know, as Western society, we are so death denying. You know, the idea of death conjures up all these strong feelings, fear, worry, and what do we do? We dismiss it, we push it aside. But really, we should be talking about it more in a way that honors what death is, which is simply a part of life. Absolutely. And I don't think that there are, like, in my head, I'm like, well, who who do they expect to do the work? Like, if they don't mm -hmm. think that I should do the work, who's going to do the work? 
you know and it's like nobody knows like what is our it's not like you know again in my opinion and i'm sure we all agree everyone should can have these conversation everyone hopefully can maybe try to volunteer see if it works for them but i don't limit i wouldn't i would never limit someone and say well that's not work for you and i think that's that's another good thing and great thing about this again we're already dealing with death in our own individual lives you know it's just something that generally we've put no box and categorized it and labeled it death and say we only go go there when things happen and then we don't want that box to spell out into our normal life but you know that's that i don't think that's the healthy way to go about it you know and i'm sure we all agree with that i i yes i do agree we you know when the age of social media you see all these inspirational things on how to live life well how to achieve your goals all these inspirational things but very few of us really walk around thinking what a meaningful death is and i think sometimes we miss the point on that and so, but this is why you're around. This is why you're here. <laughs> this is sort of the re- the research you're doing. And so, can you talk a little about of you know what is a meaningful death to you with everything you've seen so far? A meaningful death, I think, is up to the individual. Um, everything for us is all about patient center values and care. And so, if someone says their meaningful death is to be surrounded by people they love and at home, you know, that's what we try to do. You know, my meaningful death could be different from yours. Yours could be, you know, I want to say bye to my family and I want to go alone. And I think that having these conversations so your family knows what that means is important. You, you, you know, some people are like, oh, definitely surround them with people. They want to hear all the chatter. Some people aren't like that. Some people want to be alone or some people just want to have few people around. And really at the end of life, you know, what is it that you want? You know, do you want to, you know, have your favorite ice cream, be able to talk to your family, or is it watching football? I think, you know, putting your mind at ease too when you're leaving, you know, does that mean advanced care planning? Does that mean, does that mean, you know, you have people come and visit you. I think it comes down to a very individual level. I think everybody all agrees that they don't want to be in pain and symptoms are managed, but I think some of the nuances need to be answered too. And so family, that's where family comes in and these conversations are important. So I can't say in general what a meaningful death is because I personally believe it is a very individualized experience. Yeah, it's well said and there's not one right answer. And through your time there, has there been anything that surprised you with what maybe someone wanted in their uh, for their death? I can't say I've been surprised. Uh, in our patient population that we serve is pretty homogeneous, and so everybody um, tends to identify with the Christian or Catholic faith. But I know from my own personal experiences that there's a very common thing that said, you know, oh, you know, 80% of Americans want to die at home. But I know some of the cultural differences. Uh, that sometimes dying at home is not where people want. Uh, For example, my own grandmother, she didn't want to die at home because that would be thought as unlucky to die at home and have a death occur in the house. So she much have rather, um, she preferred to have died in a facility, which she did, and that was something that she had wanted. So I think that as healthcare providers, we have to not impose what we think is a good death. 
yes, there's, you know, the survey data, people want to die at home, but I always think back to cultural differences that might not be the case. Yeah, that's really surprising for me too. And I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, she just said that. <laughs> like, but you're right, like dying at home for some people, that's very unlucky. And that's not something they want. And this is why I think the research and these talks are so important to realize people's viewpoints on their own death or death itself or dreams has a really big part on uh, how you can help them best um, in reaching their goals or helping their family. So I think it's it's fabulous the work you do. So let's talk about some of your research that you're doing. Is there what are some of the projects that you've worked on, and what are some of the findings that you you want to sort of share? Well, we do work. Uh, we do do a lot of research about end of life dreams and visions. So. These are dream experiences of people who are seriously ill. Um, these dreams typically feature deceased loved ones visiting, past meaningful experiences, and they're typically very real. People have a height, uh, heightened sense of reality when they have these dreams. And uh, a large part of our initial research was to uh, normalize and validate these experiences. And we studied it from the patient perspective. We were the first group to do that. And more important to us was to distinguish these end-of-life dreams and visions from other pathological changes that can occur at the end of life, namely delirium. So when people go through a dying process, sometimes they do encounter delirium where they're hallucinating, having very distressful dreams, you know, spiders are climbing up them, snakes are wrapped around their neck, and what physicians do is medicate. However, with end-of-life dreams and visions, we are saying this is inherent to the dying process and it's meaningful to the patient and the family. And so we're working hard to distinguish the different elements. And so uh, we've developed a tool to help uh, clinicians distinguish between the two phenomenon. And so that is something that is being published uh, right now or under review. That's so amazing. Sorry. I'm actually so excited that you're doing that because I remember that was one of the big issues that physicians had is trying to distinguish between the two and and so you doing this i know it's going to help the people at end of life and their families to see this stuff a little differently and you need the research for people to sort of value um, or even just talk about this new phenomenon even though it's not new so i think that's so amazing and so crucial so great work <laughs> that you're doing i gotta say um just fabulous Thank you. We've taken the research a little bit further now. We're looking at how end-of-life dreams and visions can affect other psychological processes that can occur at the end of life. Uh, so we're writing up a manuscript about end-of-life dreams and visions and post-traumatic growth. So post-traumatic growth is something where if people are going through a stressful life event or a trauma, you know, for example, confronting your mortality would be a trauma, a stressful life event that that you exhibit positive psychological growth. And so we want to understand how and if and the life dreams and visions play a role uh, in that growth. And so we had survey people who were dreaming, people who were not dreaming, and use a post-traumatic uh, growth inventory scale. And we found that people who have end life dreams and visions have exhibited larger growth, post-traumatic growth, uh, specifically in areas of spiritual growth, uh, relationships. And so it's something that's exciting to see how 
how end-of-life dreams and visions are helping people go through the dying process. So that's something that we're writing up right now. Wow, that's actually really cool because that's basically half my dissertation <laughs> is, uh, is about even that post-traumatic growth. And did you separate dreams from, with positive dreams or comforting dreams versus discomforting dreams? Because I know in, in my research that it was only the comforting dreams that were related to post-traumatic growth and the negative or distressing dreams um, were not. We did interview them and ask them uh, what it was, but we didn't we didn't analyze it with regards to the comfort level because it's uh, it was something we decided not to look at. But something I now that you mentioned, I wanted to point out is for us, a dream can be distressing, but you can have comfort from it after you make sense of it. So that's something we've been trying to uh, tell people is you can have a distressing dream, but how you make sense of it afterwards can have a profound impact as well. And so that kind of leads us to our bereavement study where we looked at how end life dreams and visions influence bereavement outcomes for the people that they leave behind. And so we found that when the patient has uh, comforting dreams or perceived comfort from dreams, that the caregiver have be has better uh, bereavement outcomes um, as well, especially when they're trying to make sense of it. Oh, that's so interesting. And that's like it shows a positive, uh, like a positive reason to really ask about these dreams and to talk about them in front of families too. Because if it can not only help the the dying, but also help those around them, like what more do you want? Like so, you have like you're helping basically everyone with like one dream or vision can actually help a whole family, not just the one person. Absolutely. I've had families express that they wish they talked more about the dreams. And then I have, you know, the other side where patients said that they have never had a, a good relationship or open relationship with, well, with their father or their mother. But through the dreams, they were so close at the end of life because they were able to talk about the dreams. So it's incredibly powerful how, you know, a few dreams or even just one dream can make a difference. Um, as long as you're open to talking about it. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's amazing work you're, that you're doing, you continue to do because it says it opens the, the door for more communication and to normalize this experience uh, in other hospices because I can only imagine other hospices, there's no training. They don't have people like you. And so a lot of these dreams and visions are being, you know, maybe said being hallucinations or delirium or they're just being hidden. So like the, the, the dying is just, they're holding on to those experiences because they don't want to seem crazy or they don't want to upset anyone. And so hopefully I think, you know, as you move forward, hopefully other hospices can include a lot of the stuff in their training manuals for, to normalize this experience uh, for the, the dying. I hope so too, because we're actually starting to work on a toolkit um, <laughs> for uh, different sites, um, starting with our own, where people can go on a website and get resources on how to engage with people with with dreams and what does that mean and and not everyone has to be a dream psychologist just to have a conversation. So we've been giving talk, community talks about that a lot, but I think it's time. It's good. It's a good time for us to move into a toolkit for clinicians now. So that's what we're we're starting at the moment. Wow, good for you. That's uh, you're ahead of the game. <laughs> so, but the people need that, right? Like you've done so much research. It's something that you can put out there 
to make that lasting impression on hospices around the world because if you know like realizing we like i take for granted i know sean does uh, you probably do too of how about the research that we know and what we know about communicating this stuff most people they're not getting taught this and so they're left to their own devices and there's a reason why no one really investigated it prior <laughs> and so like, you doing what you're doing yeah like you're the people that need to sort of put that out so i'm so happy that you have that because then all it takes is you know you to for hospices to just go on the website and download that and train their volunteers or put it within their training manuals. Um, so man, good for you guys. I'm so supportive of what you're doing and what you're doing is changing the world. And that's something you've always wanted to do. And here you are, you actually are doing it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have to say I had done a few uh, focus groups a, uh, a few weeks ago and it was caregivers of patients who had end of life dreams and visions and inevitably they talk about their own grief dreams and all I kept thinking about was you and I was like oh I bet he would love to be in this group because inevitably the dreams of the dying somehow bleed into conversations about dreams of the bereaved and and especially when they have such a positive experience with dreams of the dying that they they themselves want to have grief dreams that they haven't had them already I've had a daughter say, I want to have a dream of my mother, but I can't right now. I know it's supposed to happen. And so um, I was thinking about you the entire time uh, when people are talking about their grief dreams. Uh, thanks. <laughs> and yeah, I can't wait to maybe one day you guys will venture into that area a little bit because yeah, the uh, the caregivers may be having their own uh, grief dreams or anticipatory grief dreams of the deceit, of the dying. And that sometimes can help them be able to cope and transition but also the I said like the bereaved and i'm always i'm really curious if those people who dream of the the deceased are the same people who are dreaming at end of life you know cuz not everyone has these dreams in their bereavement i would be curious as well too i think it it probably comes down to openness to dreams too you know i think we've had patients who said i've never had a dream i don't intend on having dreams because i think dreams are a bunch of hooey and then I meet people who love dreams and they've always loved dreams and I think that there's a openness to dreams and that's something we're also looking at with uh with a follow-up study with our bereaved is how open they are to dreams in general because I think that lends itself into uh possibly dreaming more or at least being open to when someone else dreams and you talk about it I think being in in the spot where you are and you know in in America I think it's a great place to be in Canada as well and any country that has a lot of different cultures it's, it's exciting exciting and interesting cuz now you have that much more variables at play you know different cultural elements religious elements you know social just just social norms that differentiate us and like you said before each individual is different but I think a study like yours is important because people we all trust science we all trust you know the process you know science is the new religion in a lot of ways so i think it's a vital that you know there's this there's there's that academic push academics lead the way in uh, um, learning and teaching people about these topics because i think then people will buy into it that much more uh, once they see the, the evidence and the proof of uh, what you guys are doing and so that that alone must you know that alone is so important 
And uh, again, like that, you and your team, um, everybody at Buffalo Hospice is doing an incredible job, which again, supports the work we do, because then we can now just, you know, point at the academic work and say, hey, uh, yeah, this is what we're saying. But also, here's the academic uh, scientific studies behind it. People are actually doing it as we speak, which is big. And I think that we need, you know, people to uh, share what research has done. I'm a big proponent of of educating the community about what's happening in the scientific world. You know, knowledge is not supposed to be kept with academics and scholars and researchers. People should learn about what is happening um, in science so that they understand, you know, and I think podcasts such as yours make it very accessible. And I think that that's a very important to the whole scientific process is, is that piece that sometimes we forget. Oh yeah, uh, very important. Like it, it's it's sometimes again like you know researchers, academics can write papers that sometimes just sit there, and it's not their fault. They've done their work. Uh, you know sometimes you need uh, another force. You need some go between to kind of then introduce it into society and and especially something so applicable like this. Um, you know you guys are seeing real impact in right away almost in, in the work that you're doing as opposed to you know coming up with a. a cure for some disease and you know you know the process around that that could take years 10 years 20 years into coming up with a cure finally they get it made and it goes into society like that those processes are so long here's something that you guys are doing right away that's impacting society now it's about how do we get this into uh the society at large and you know obviously you guys uh that's something we've tapped into and then we definitely want to want to be that voice who shares a lot of that information and this is a fun fact. Uh, I also, my other passion is uh, science education. So you're basically doing something that I would love to be able to do myself. So I'm incredibly jealous of you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know what? We can help you get your own podcast. You can definitely. Oh, I like that. You know, and share everything as it happens. <laughs> <laughs> How about I just give you content and then uh, I can okay. make a guest appearance, appearance here or there. I feel like. You'll be our correspondent. Yeah. Like Yes, you could be I our could be Buffalo correspondent. Hospice correspondent. Okay. I would love that. <laughs> would you ever want a guest host to really test out your skills? <laughs> sure. I would love to give it a job if you guys would have me. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, you can interview one of your employees or something about like their, their journey and stuff. I think that'd be kind of fun. <laughs> I think so, too. Well, and I'm sure that like I would imagine that some academics are a little bit shy and they maybe feel like they don't want to maybe come off give up too much information and, and details because maybe they feel like it's boring or it's dense. Trust me, like people love it. I love it. And if I love it, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are going to love just getting into the nitty gritty science of it. I mean, there's podcasts right now that are just so dense that I got to like go through twice just to listen to it. But I love it because in, in normal society, you just don't get that depth of kind of research and detail that, you know, someone like you or you know, one of your colleagues could provide. So I, I don't shy away from it. The, you know, be you. Go with what you want to go with what you know. And I think that that'll be successful. Thank you. I like it. Look at the stuff we're putting on on our plate. <laughs> 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 Podcast and maybe a website. Do you guys have a website that has information about some of the findings and, and all that? Is that part of that toolkit? You're going to have your own website? Uh, the toolkit will be an offset of our main website. That's the current plan for it now. So people can go on 
um, and just click on something about end of life dreams and visions. We do have our department webpage housed under the main website, but it's um, it doesn't summarize the findings, just links to our research papers. So uh, there's opportunity for growth, you know, infographics and making the findings uh, a lot more accessible to the public. Yeah, and this is the fun part now, like with the technology is can, you have new ways of reaching people that you never could before. Before the main model was you go to a research conference and you pay a thousand bucks to present your findings. <laughs> um, but now it's totally different. And like now you can do some, a lot of grassroots movement really easy just by having a website, just by doing this like podcast or Instagram, that sort of stuff. And one of your projects actually is using technology, which I'm really excited for. It's the uh, photographs of meaning the research that you're doing. Could you just uh, speak quickly on that and, and what you're finding with, uh, with that stuff? Oh, I love this project. So this project uh, involved us making a intervention for family caregivers who are caring for seriously ill children. So simply, they're an underserved population. Um, when people think about caregiving, they tend to think about someone who is caring for someone who's elderly. But there's families out there that are caring for young children who have serious illness. And so on top of regular caregiving, they're dealing with a young child as well. And they're also dealing with healthy children. And so there's a lot of psychological distress that can occur while caring for a very sick child. And so we were trying to find a way to help individuals in a way that is not burdensome. And so we thought, let's leverage technology. And so we decided to create an intervention that helps enhance meaning making uh, and do it through social media. And so each week, our family caregivers will be sent a theme of the week. And these questions are based on meaning-making psychotherapy. And so these questions and answering them is supposed to kind of boister meaning-making and well-being. And so having them answer and put things in perspective, uh, helping them kind of get out of that rut that they're experiencing. And so oh, we use a thing called photo voice. And so photo voice is a research technique where you take a picture about your lived reality and explain the picture. And that act of sharing your story, your narrative can be also very powerful. So now we're coupling two techniques now, the meaning-making psychotherapy, the questions, but also coupling it with a storytelling component. And then that's all done through social media. And so we had a closed group using a, an, a an app called Pick Story, um, where you can take pictures in and uh, record. And so what we found was, first, our caregivers were surprised that we were asking questions about them. Uh, they're like, oh, I thought you were going to ask me about my children. But we're like, no, this this is, you know, your storytelling time. It's about you. So we would ask questions like, what is your identity like now? What was your identity before becoming a caregiver of a sick child? What does a good day look like? What does a bad day look like? And in answering and doing this exercise weekly for eight or nine weeks has really helped them in, you know, searching for meaning and having meaning in what they're going through. And so that we had done a feasibility study back in 2017, and we've adjusted the program a little bit and launched another one in 2018. And the whole process ends with a big community photo exhibit because 
as part of Voter Voice, you want the community to know about your struggles, know about what you're going through, and it educates the community about your lived reality. And so I've been rambling on a little bit about the project, but that's pretty much what it is, is it's a very powerful intervention we've developed and found to have really great uh, psychological outcomes for family caregivers. That's fascinating. I love that idea. I mean, that's just so progressive. Like when I think of, um, and I'm just speaking about Canadian healthcare because I don't really know U.S. healthcare that much. When I take, speak, think about Canadian healthcare, sometimes you you link it with like government, which is sometimes tends to be a little bit behind the times with a lot of different things. But this is definitely at the same pace of society. You guys are tapping into social media. And you're tapping into a very common problem, which I think is sometimes we just do things without thinking and post videos or post pictures. Or, but what you guys are doing is you're allowing them or teaching people how to take control of the narrative as well, of their own life narrative. And, and elements of mindfulness are in there as well, because now people are more mindful before they put up a post and share something. They, they really have, you ask some questions, probing questions that makes them think. And again, tell their story the way they truly want to tell the story and take control of their own kind of post and life and narrative. I love that idea. I love the uh, the community piece, too, at the end, which I didn't know anything about. And I think that is like the, you know, the cherry on top is like now you can also hopefully the people can meet almost each other if they're able to. And the community can see these these pieces and understand more of what people go through. And so you're educating so the people that themselves are getting like the psychological support by being able to talk about their loss, but also then the community can also see some aspects of loss that they maybe not don't know about what people go through. And so you're increasing awareness that way. Um, but wow, that's really amazing. You guys are doing some innovative stuff there. Thank you. I think you, for us, we have heard the needs of the caregiver. They're like, we're busy. We have young children. We would love to make it to group therapy. We just can't. And so why not bring the therapy to them? You know, we, we carefully monitor everything. They can reach out to us when we need to. And the community piece is phenomenal. We did one uh, last fall at uh, one of the UB galleries, and we have caregivers come in and just cry tears of joy seeing pictures, their pictures, up on a beautiful gallery. And people were able to go up to them and talk to them. Uh, they got to meet some of the other caregivers that they only knew through through other posts. And some of them have formed friendships uh, from it. And the the photo uh, gallery piece has been quite a powerful experience uh, for the caregivers. That was something they felt they were heard. And I always like to relate it back to like, we are a society of like storytellers and story listeners and everybody wants their story to be heard. And for people who are caring for children who are seriously ill, sometimes they don't feel heard. And like you said, they're taking control of that narrative. They're telling people, this is who I am, this is who my child is, and this is a story I want you to hear and understand. And that's important. Yeah, that's so important and so powerful. It's, you know, these are people in our society um, and uh, it it's great that they get a chance to talk about their day because if you just see them through normal society, we obviously might not suspect them, well, oh, this person, you know, why is this person cutting me off in traffic? You know, why is this person yelling at me behind in, in the food takeout line or whatever? Well, these are real people with real things. And who knows what that person's going through and what 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 kind of day they're having. Um, kind of reminds me of um, 
I don't know the exact title, but there's that Instagram page with people of New York or something yes. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Humans of New York. Humans yes. of New York. And it did such a great job. Like even in the title humans of New York, because you think of New Yorkers as like brash, they're all jerks, whatever. No, you know, but here's this Instagram page where people actually go into depth. You know, it's quite long, like a paragraph of their life story or whatever they're going through at that moment or whatever they want to talk about. And it makes you understand them better and then have compassion for those people who you before you would have just shrugged off and said, oh, well, that person's not me. So I'm not really going to try to relate to them. And now you can. So I think you're doing again, the, the impact of this, this is something that we are doing already. Like you said, like sometimes, you know, people who uh, are caregivers aren't, don't have the time that that's that's like normal society so now healthcare is has to adjust and we all have to adjust to that which is great you guys are doing that um phenomenal stuff i wish we could roll this out to like you know maybe after we'll, we'll, we'll take it out of the, just the grief and and death and just roll it to normal society like if normal society people just did that instead of like you know just posting things right away just hey take a breather post about your real self post about what you want to talk about you know, add gratitude, add compassion to your posts and, and see what can come out of that. Mm -hmm. I think there's something to be said to be very intentional with your actions and your words, because you never know who you're going to affect. Um, that, you know, you might be posting something and someone else can be so moved by it. And I, I would like to think that, you know, using like social media for good rather than evil influence would be great. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult for us to kind of post about Thing, challenges we're having things we're doing because again you go on social media everybody's posting good stuff but uh i think that there's something endearing and something beautiful about people people being able to expose their um doubts or insecurities or uh challenges throughout the day um and who knows who knows i think i think the whole social media thing is evolving i think that um you know it's still relatively new and i think that you're tapping into something that could be the the bright side of it, the good way to do it. Thank you. You better watch out. Instagram might be trying to hire you soon. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be wonderful. We had thought about using Instagram as the app, uh, but we end up we're working with a uh, a, a local uh, a local app that uh, that was able to do something like this. So so we kept it local this time around. So but. that's funny. All right. So I'm um, just moving on to the next session of what we always talk about is is other people's loss. I know you sit with a lot of dying people and you might have, you know, had some emotions when they've died because uh, you were attached to certain people for certain reasons. Have you also lost other people in your life? I have. Um, I have lost family. I lost both my grandmothers in 2011 and uh, I, I was close with them. I love them very much. Uh, my one grandmother did have end-of-life dreams and visions. She would see my grandfather, who I never met, and she would see one of her sons that was deceased. And uh, at that time, uh, I didn't know anything about end-of-life dreams and visions, and my family understood those dreams and visions to be, they understood that she was dying, and they thought ghosts were coming to take her away, and they were very saddened when she was talking about um, seeing deceased loved ones. But... She was happy to see them, so that's all that matters. Wow. So they died. When did you start being the uh, director of research there? Uh, July 2012. Oh, it's so like right before? 
<laughs> I would say a year a year after. So uh, it wasn't very raw or anything like that for me at that point. Um, wow. So, so I, but I really I, didn't know much about uh, end of life care at that point either. Mm. So it's interesting what I know now and like reflecting back of what my family went through and what does that mean to have a dignified uh, death and maintaining dignity through serious illness and comfort and things like that. I wish I knew more. Uh, I wish I knew what I knew now back then. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it changes everything, right? Our, our life journey and especially with the work you're doing, <laughs> you're just like, there's so many different things you could do differently. And so when you, when your grandmothers did die, like how was that grief for you? And was there a specific Chinese ritual or anything that occurred because of it? We had a, um, uh, both for both grandmothers, we had Buddhist, Buddhist funerals. And so there were a lot of incense burning, offerings to ancestors so that they would be able to pass through their, you know, spiritual journey with ease. Uh, so they were, we would be burning um, paper that was supposed to be akin to money or gold, and those rituals would like help um, ease that transition from life to death. So we did a lot of that. There were a lot of prayers. There were monks uh, that were with us a lot, and so there was always gathering the family and praying. So that's how I remember a lot uh, for myself uh, in in doing that. Some of the rituals I didn't quite understand. Uh, some of them I went along with it, but I just remember the overwhelming sadness that came with that. Um, my one grandmother, I was in California doing an experiment when I found out that she died, and that was hard. I wasn't, I wasn't with her. My other grandmother, I had just visited her, drove back to Buffalo, only to have my dad call me, and uh, I drove right away back, five hours back to Windsor, Ontario. Uh, to say goodbye, but I didn't make it in time. So I do have some regrets not saying goodbye because it was such a long trajectory that it wasn't clear when she was going to die. And so I wish I had final words. Um, so that was in January and my second grandmother died in February. So I chose to make sure that I spoke my last words to her, that I told her that I loved her. Yeah, that's that's difficult, you know, dealing with those losses and back to back, especially you some so special like grandparents. It is, and yeah. with my family in Chinese culture, we tend to be stoic, and so we don't say "I love you" freely like some other cultures, you know, and and so feeling that loss of not having said that when they were alive made me. Uh, freely say I love you now to my family all the time now because I don't want them to ever know that I you know that I never expressed it so I think that that those regrets have taught me to move past that protocol of being stoic and not saying that I love you things like that so I've learned from that yeah no I definitely I get that sentiment um my uh, my grandmother, she died in December. Uh, actually, sorry, early January, and she didn't um, she didn't speak English that well. So a part of me is always kind of regretting that. I guess I didn't learn the language better, or we just couldn't have uh, kind of like an intimate conversation type thing. Like we would speak, but like kind of um, just basic stuff. Um, so I, now I, I like to think that in her death that we can, we can speak to each other and 
languages, no barrier. I was wondering, did the funeral rituals that you kind of went through, the Chinese funeral rituals, did didn't did, were those helpful to you um, and or your family? I believe that they were helpful in in uh, in the grief because it gave us something to do, something that we could still do uh, despite uh, the physical death that we were assisting. Uh, her still in the spiritual realm. So I, I believe that that was something that was helpful for my for my family, that there was something concrete that you could do. You could pray, you can uh, kneel, you could burn incense, you could burn these, you know, different things uh, to help her out. So I think that that would, uh, that in and of itself helps people um, as part of um, the initial shock of grief, something tangible to, to to work with, and also the continuing bond too. That the relationship doesn't end with the physical death. That uh, that there's still something connecting us all. So I think that uh, that is helpful um, for my family. Have you ever had a dream of either your grandmothers? I did. I had a grief dream of my maternal grandmother shortly after I started hospice. And I remember thinking, wow, this is the first time I had a grief dream. I uh, uh, had a grief dream. And and I remember there were a lot of people just walking around. Uh, but I remember seeing her and just standing there exactly as I remembered her, just every single detail of her. And she sat down at a bench uh, with me. There were a lot of stairs around her, but it was a park bench. and. She didn't say anything. She just held my hand, and that was enough for me. It was nice to see her again. Wow. So it's almost like a stoic way of saying I love you. Yes, yes. And when I did tell her I loved her, she couldn't speak because she was so ill at that time, but she had tapped her chest, and I knew she understood me. So that was something that uh, that I keep with me and I hold with me dearly. That's beautiful, and it's beautiful to to hear about these stories and to hear about your own journey. Cause I'm guessing you spend so much time with other people's loss and hearing their stories. Um, your own sometimes can get, you know, put in the backdrop. I know it does for me. A lot of people just, you know, like when they talk about the subject, um, even on the podcast and stuff, it's, we, we're here for them. Um, but there's a part of me that, you know, always wants to sort of share uh, or, come out and, and talk more about my loss and so i'm glad i can hear more about yours because i think it's the first time i'm hearing about it so you know like what a beautiful i think relationship you have and also the lessons you've learned from the, the separate losses i'm glad you had such a, a beautiful dream i'm curious in in the dream was was she the age she died at or was she a little younger she was the age she died at but she was healthy her her disease we didn't know that she had cancer so the the cancer had metastasized everywhere in her body so oh uh it was very rapid within one month she had died we didn't know that she had cancer so um so i saw her as i remembered her before we realized she had the illness that she had the cancer that's how i saw her she wasn't any younger I think in, at least for me, my memory, my grandmother's always looked the same, even though I know when I was younger, they probably looked younger too. But in my memory, they're, they're always the same. Even when I picture myself when I'm five, they're still looking like they were 85 at a time, even though they weren't. So that's kind of my memory of them. <laughs> it's so true. There's a point like, I don't know, after 60 where they just like look like that 
for a long time. <laughs> like my grandmother was like that as well. Like I, I can't remember her when she didn't look old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe her hair was not as black or something like that. That's the only thing I could possibly think of because she always looked the same to me. <laughs> That's funny. And was she wearing anything like in the dream that like signified her? Like did she have like a specific kind of dress or that she was wearing? Uh, she wore what she normally wear, which was a Chinese looking outfit she sometimes mm-hmm. wore that I, I seem to you know recall that she had it was some, I, pre, uh, I recognized the outfit oh, um, it was like a periwinkle and it had like a mandarin neck two piece and uh, she just sat there it was it was a outfit that was in her wardrobe it wasn't anything different it wasn't mm-hmm. anything new she didn't have a light around her she just was her it was as if it was a memory, but I was dreaming it. Wow, that's cool. I like hearing these stories. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually never really told many people about this. I think I told my team at the time I come in, I'm like, I had a grief dream. So I think you might be the third person and Sean, you the fourth to, to hear about this dream. And now I guess whoever listens to this uh, <laughs> podcast. That's exciting. But hey, this is the, the goal, right? Is to share these experiences because they have been meaningful to you and to was it meaningful having that that dream and waking up from that? It was very meaningful. And also being the researcher that I am, and we we did do a study on dreams are bereaved at that time. So I was thinking, I'm like, it must be because I'm thinking about work. And that's why I'm having these dreams. So I was trying to uh, intellectualize things, which I often do. <laughs> and so I was like, why was I dreaming this? The death has been, you know, why didn't I have this sooner? So I, I found myself thinking about it. But then I told myself, you know what? It made me feel good, and that's all that matters. Yeah, and like, I I sort of think that a lot of us are dreaming of our deceased loved ones. We just don't remember it. And sometimes we need these external events for us to even envision having these dreams. Because I know, as you were saying, right, the culturally, it wasn't something you probably even would want to have until maybe you started working at hospice and you started opening up that, that door of just the openness to wanting or having these experiences and so I think, you know, that's probably part of it. But it's interesting, too, like, you know, when they happen. I'm always curious about that, too. It's like, oh, why now? Right? Like, at all the times. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so Wait. how is your, what about your parents and, you know, your brother? Do you talk about loss with them, like the loss of your grandparents with them? Or is that still a taboo subject for the culture? Uh, we don't really talk about it. Uh, I know it. You know, each year at the death anniversary, we'll send each other a text, you know, or on the phone. We might be like, oh, we miss her. And that's about the extent that it is. Um, I know my mom, you know, uh, she grieved a lot when her mother had died, but we didn't really dive into any details um, of the loss, which, you know, knowing what I know now, I, I would approach it completely differently you know, culture taboo or not, I probably would have, I would approach it very differently now, but we don't really talk about it. We're not a sharing of feelings type of family. Not yet, but you're, you're changing (laughs) (laughs) and you're changing the family. (laughs) That's true. As a rebel. As a rebel. That's right. Well, that's rebel can cause great change. I hear Jesus was a rebel. (laughs) Oh yeah. Best rebel of all. (laughs) <laughs> and so have you ever asked them if they've ever had a dream of your grandparents no hmm. no i wonder I, i've never because i've i've read it today 
Oh yeah, because I've and I wonder what their feelings would be because I know some Buddhists are um, they have this idea or this belief that even positive dreams are the, of the deceased are like the soul wandering. And if you have the dream after two years, it's signifying that they haven't reincarnated and it's like a negative thing, even though they're saying, I love you and it's comforting. So I always find it interesting with, you know, if their oh, dream is- Oh, I've never heard of that, but that does make sense though. Yeah, there's a study, uh, Hinton et al., I think it's 2003, 2013, sorry. They looked at, at that and I was shocked by seeing some of the stuff because some of them were very loving dreams, but they're, they had high distress over it. So yeah, it's very, very interesting about some of the stuff that's out there and the cultures. We just had um, an individual on, Kevin Toulis, and he was speaking about uh, the, the grief dreams in Ireland and that culture. And they have a similar belief too of the wandering soul. So these dreams are just a wandering soul and they can harm you and stuff. So they don't really want to talk about these dreams or even have them. So yeah, it's very interesting about because there's not a lot of research, there's all this other stuff going on and people are coming up with these different interpretations of what what's occurring and it can be very distressing so i'm curious to yeah, if your if your mom or dad are having any of that distress from having even positive dreams oh i, I should ask them when i talk to them today i'd be like how do you have any dreams i'd be like why how are you asking me about my dreams like, because i talked to joshua <laughs> i was on a podcast <laughs> yeah it's uh you know it, i think it's one of those things that um there are a lot of people around us and uh, a lot of people who have different cultures and, and ways of viewing the world. And, and, you know, again, even, even in my own family, I think a lot of it comes down to compassion. Um, I think uh, sometimes, again, people don't know why, but sometimes, you know, I think spiritual, spiritual things were kind of avoided. Um, nightmares are kind of avoided. Dark dreams are kind of avoided. Um, in that uh, even just understanding them can lead to more um, and and maybe thinking about them, ruminating about them can lead to them, them taking over your life. And I, I, a lot of it, again, I, I attribute to just lack of knowledge, you know, just ignorance around staying away from it in general, not getting to know it. And I think uh, the, uh, one of our goals is just the more we get to have these conversations with people, the more we can talk about it positive and also negative dreams or ne negative things that happen, uh, the more we can just touch on the fact that, look, taking it all in is important. Understanding all of it is important. And you're not necessarily going to, you know, go into a dark space just because, for instance, you have a, a negative dream, you know, who knows, you know, what's going to happen with that. But uh, again, just, just making people comfortable about it because, yeah, like, like Josh said, like even, the, the Catholic religion, there's aspects of it that talk about a restless soul and that can, that can just have people shy away from the whole experience in general. So then they don't get to experience something that could possibly be beneficial for their life because they're avoiding, um, you know, the, the, the dark aspects of it. I think it just takes a lot of people like yourselves just to get the message out there, normalizing it. Mm. Yeah, well, I think your work's helping us and vice versa. So I'm just glad that we could have this conversation and, and talk more about sort of just life and you know, what you've experienced along the way and the differences in both of our, all of our journeys. And so I'm curious, is, were those the two main losses in your life? I had a miscarriage in December. So that was pretty traumatizing for me. That was a very uh, 
difficult experience. Uh, and so that would be my next big loss. So my third big loss in my life would be my miscarriage. I'm sorry to, to hear you had to actually go through that. How was the support around you around that time? Because like we've had people on the podcast that have worked with people or who've had their own miscarriage and they said it can be very disenfranchising, very lonely experience. Um, for you, did you have the support around you to help carry that? I did. I thankfully did. I did not feel that I was disenfranchised in any way at that time. You know, just, uh, you know, my team was very supportive. Um, you know, um, my family and friends were very supportive. So, so I'm very grateful for that. I, for me, it was difficult because miscarriages are so common, and I knew the stats, one for miscarriages. But when it happens, you know, when it actually happens to you, that it just feels like my world, you know, my world had turned upside down because I, I just didn't expect it. So I thought I was going to meet a healthy baby. I was feeling great. And then when I went to doctors, that's when we were told that we had lost the baby. And so that was that was very difficult. And I went through um, my grief, but also at the same time, I tend to intellectualize. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, am I processing my grief well? Checking on my husband. I'm like, are we processing okay? Do we need more psychological help? So I was doing all these things in my head to assess us clinically uh, when I should have just grieved. And so my husband's like, stop trying to analyze. I'm like, I need to know we're coping appropriately so that, you know, if, we, if there's any flags, we need to get the help that we need. He's like, just just not do that right now. Um, so That's people were, 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 were very supportive and understanding. So so uh, so that was something I think we didn't have to feel disenfranchised uh, about. Wow, that's uh, I'm I'm really happy for that, and I think it's kind of funny too that you try to intellectualize the whole grief process since you know so much information about it now. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, so I'm like, what am I doing now? I'm definitely uh, working through this task, and then other times, I'm like, oh, definitely angry here. So, uh, and I think you know, I can't tell if it was just my coping mechanism to intellectualize and say, okay, this is what it is. And I could focus on that rather than feel the waves of emotion that, that do come. So, Yeah, it can be, you know, waves of emotion. That's a great analogy. You know, it's, it's a chaotic sea, if you will. So I could see that you're just trying to maintain control intellectually. And then, where, you know, it's a, it's a process where definitely control leaves you. I mean, at times, it's it's been three months, and so sometimes it feels really really raw still, and other times it feels like it happened so long ago. So it's interesting uh, when I notice that, I'm like, huh, what does this mean? And I try not to get into it too much in my own yeah, space. It's, you know, like, I find that too with even, you know, with my own own grief with my father. Like, when I was, uh, like, going to defend i'm like i wonder when the grief's coming because i it should come because i'm closing a chapter that's all based on his life and it never really came i'm like oh well nothing came interesting and then only recently did it actually hit me because with all like changes going on uh, i i felt back to wait a second i haven't actually felt anything from that closing that chapter and then all of a sudden like it really it came out i'm like whoa where did this come from and it affected my mood because I wasn't feeling right and I couldn't figure it out. And then all of a sudden, it was the grief that was unacknowledged through the defense 
that uh, was coming up. And this is a thing, right? It's a thing with grief is like, you know, it's great to intellectualize, but it's like getting to the feeling of the stuff is I think what, what we all need at times and um, to not forget about it. And I think that's my lesson that I learned today is I forgot about it and it came back to haunt me in a way because it destroyed my mood and the joy in my life. And then, but once I was able to cry and, and grieve and, and realize, oh, right, yes. And then all of a sudden my joy came back, the happiness came back. But it's interesting on, on you know, being an academic on, you know, how easy it is to avoid the feeling <laughs> of, of the loss. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, have you ever had a dream of your baby yet? Because I know that that's common. No, I haven't. I, I have not. I've had dreams of future babies where I then remember I had a miscarriage, but I haven't had one of this baby um, that we named Luke because we know that it's, uh, the baby was a boy. We named him. So not no dreams about Luke yet. <laughs> okay. Well, if you, if you end up having one, I'd love to hear about it because that's, you know, just an interest of mine when it comes to this stuff and what people, you know, process when it comes to miscarriage and stuff. It, you know, if it helps or if it doesn't when it comes to these dreams that they have. So hopefully yours is comforting and provide you uh, maybe even like to hear his voice because, you know, that's something I know moms, you know, that's one thing like they really love seeing is the baby smile and the baby talking. Mm-hmm. That would be a lovely dream. All right. Just uh, we're about to wrap up and there's one question we always ask our guests and I know you know what it is. It's, if you could have a dream tonight of anyone who has died, uh, who would that be? And what would that look like? I think I would like to have a dream of my baby. Hmm. I mean, and I never got to meet the baby. And I think it would be nice to have a dream to have a conversation or just see the baby. I, I guess I, I, I can't picture what the baby would be looking like. Uh, you know, since they're a baby, they can't talk. But I think that would be nice. I think it would be nice. Either that or my other grandmother, who I didn't uh, have a grief dream of yet. So between those two, I think I would love to uh, to have a dream about that. And I'm a very uh, vivid dreamer and avid dreamer, too. So I'm surprised I haven't had these dreams yet, to be honest. So I'm a little bit disappointed in myself, I got to say. This could be your night. Who knows, right? <laughs> Coming on the podcast could trigger something. Bam. <laughs> you're intellectualizing it too much. You're thinking about too much. You got to, you know, maybe do some meditation tonight. Put some lavender in your body and just kind of zen out. I'll try that. And if I do dream, I'll let you guys know right away. <laughs> That's funny. And so for the baby, I'm curious because I've seen so many dreams of babies at different age, even teenagers, and the teenager talks to the, the mother or partner. Uh, so would you want it to be as like an actual baby? Like, like was it, you know, six months, you know, one month? Or would you want it to be a little older? Um, that's hard to say because I've actually thought about this before. Uh, whether or not I want uh, to meet the baby so I can hold the baby or meet the baby if, you know, he was older and he could speak to me. Mm. Um, but I think I would like, you know, I uh, now that I'm talking with you, I think I would like to have a baby that I could hold in my arms because I never had a chance to. Mm. And I know with dreams that sometimes you don't have to say anything, but a lot can be felt. So even if the baby didn't talk, I think I would feel it. And so that's what I would like to to hold my baby in my arms when I didn't have that chance to. 
yeah, maybe your grandmother bringing you your baby so that you can hold. That'll be a double whammy. That'll be awesome. Right? Might not. Might as well. <laughs> Grandma bringing Luke to you. Wow. So that's it's such a beautiful. It's a beautiful image in my mind to for you to be able to have that. But I said it also reminds me of what you lost, and that itself is is very heartbreaking for me. That you know you had to go through that. But I'm glad you had the support. And I'm glad you were able to come on here to even share it because I know it's only been three months, as you were saying, and that's not a lot of time to be able then to talk about it to us. So thank you for opening up that story for us to hear about more of what you're going through currently uh, in your own own life. And once again, thank you so much for just coming on, doing the research you're doing. You're, you're a real leader in this world. And I want to really make that clear that you're doing such an amazing job that you know I hope you know the power of what you're doing and how it's affecting the world. Um, because just from what I'm seeing and even like the people I'm talking to, I'm always sharing your stuff and what you guys, you and uh, Dr. Kerr are doing at the hospice because, you know, like no one else is doing this stuff. And so you guys are pioneers in this field uh, to allow people to die a more meaningful death and to be able to share these experiences. So thank you again. Thank you for uh, letting me talk and share my experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well said, Joshua. Um, I feel the same way. I think that um, you guys are definitely pioneers in doing what you do. And without people like you, um, I think it'd be harder to try to advocate um, for uh, grief and grief dreams and, and loss. Hey, can you share any um, websites or any location where people can find you and the work that you're doing? People can find our published research on our Hostess Buffalo website, so hostessbuffalo.com. People are free to follow me on Twitter at PayGrant and my Instagram, which is at PayCGrant. If people are interested in, um, and I post some things about death and dying, some of our research. So those are places that people can uh, can find what's going on with some of our research. But for articles, definitely the uh, Hostess Buffalo uh, website. That's beautiful. And also, you guys need money to do research. So is it, do people, can people donate on the website and would that go towards helping with the research and finding participants? So people can donate on our website to the organization. And if they would like to, uh, they can earmark that uh, for, for research as well. Yes. That's beautiful. All right, listeners, uh, if you have uh, any extra money, like that's a great place to be able to put it or to, um, when you do get money sometime in the future, to actually look into that and to donate to that because if you're listening to this you probably realize how important this topic is and there's not a lot of people doing it and they need money to do it so please go out and and do your best to support them yes thank you our research is all backed by our donors so we appreciate everyone's generosity in contributing uh, so that we can do the work that we do to serve our community fantastic and and definitely a, a worthy cause to give to um your group uh, so for our platform, we can check us out at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. Uh, we did add a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. Uh, if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. Um, and we are on Twitter and Instagram, Instagram at Grief Dreams. And uh, as always, we like to end with love and gratitude from us to you.
I have enjoyed this conversation in English. I have questions. I have introduced myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.